Hail and well met, everybody. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a show by nerds, for nerds, who love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather. I'm Russell. And we'll be your hosts for this journey through the wondrous land of information. Hi guys, uh, welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself, or this fortnight's episode of Geek Thyself. Uh, as you probably can tell, it's just me this week, uh, because we are terrible with times and work. You, you guys know, our schedules never line up right, and it just happened that we couldn't, we couldn't get together for this one. Um, so we're doing a slight change to what we had planned. Uh, we had planned to talk about Henry VIII, and we felt like that particular topic has quite a bit of juicy, juicy things that we're both pretty aware of. Excuse me. So, uh, we have decided to push that one back for when we can next meet up, which should be for the next episode, fingers crossed. And in the meantime, I'm actually going to cover a topic which I guess should be maybe Heather's topic, but um, Heather's um, more busy uh, and I have a little bit more time to, to get this out. So, we're going to be talking about the US presidency specifically, not the president, the, the actual role. Uh, because obviously uh, this week, uh, today actually when this episode comes out, um, the 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 inauguration of the next president is scheduled to to happen. Um, not I'm not going to get very political in this one. We kind of did that a little bit in the, the in the first episode of the year, so we're not going to do that. But we're just uh, it's a really interesting kind of thing how it was all set up. Obviously. Uh, with uh, the American English Civil War, no, no, Civil War, no, I, I, I think it's the Civil War. Uh, I'm not super familiar with the terminology, uh, but I do like to learn about it. So that's what we are going to basically be doing. All right. So, uh, obviously the origins. Yep. Yeah, oh, American Revolutionary War, not Civil War. That's a different one. <laughs> Uh, um, obviously, uh, that came to an end in seventeen. No, 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 didn't come to an end in seventeen seventy-six. Uh, uh, but that's uh, the sort of uh, the first year of things. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. Uh, anyway, the the thirteen colonies uh, um, all come together and acted jointly through the Second Continental Congress. Uh, which was in uh, 1775. Uh, so uh, that came into effect then, and then the colonies, with the Congress, declared themselves to be 13 independent sovereign states, and they were no longer under British rule, which is obviously what kicked off the whole uh, war bit, because uh, King George III didn't really like that all that much. <laughs> Uh, they also began the process to draft a constitution which would bind all the states together into what we now know as the United States. Uh, <clears throat> there were long debates on a number of issues, including representation and voting, and the exact powers given to the central government. The Congress uh, finished work on the Articles of the Confederation uh, between the states in November 1777, uh, and sent it to the states for ratification. And... Uh, a ratification is uh, like the principal approval of an act uh, of agents that lack the authority to bind the pr principal legacy. Uh, legally, sorry, yeah. Ratification de uh, defines uh, the internet 
the, the international act of the state indicates its consent to be bound to a treaty if the parties intended to show their consent by such an act. So yeah, uh, under those uh, articles which took uh, effect in March of 1781, uh, Congress uh, was a uh, Congress of the Confederation was a central political authority without any legislative power. Um, it could make its own resolutions and stuff like um, a determinants and all that kind of thing, but it actually couldn't make any new laws, and it couldn't impose any taxes or enforce local commercial regulations upon its citizens. Uh, the institutional design ref uh, reflected how Americans believed uh, <coughs> believed that uh, disposed British system of Crown and Parliament ought to have functioned with respect to the Royal Dominion, a superintending body that matters uh, for concerning the entire empire. <coughs> All right. Uh, in uh, so basically what uh, Congress sort of did is now they weren't sort of under any monarchy at this point uh, because they'd obviously left um, the British Empire. Uh, they assigned uh, like uh, things that were formerly sort of royal prer prerogatives like making war, receiving ambassadors uh, to the Congress uh, and the re remaining pro prerogatives were lodged uh, within their own respective state governments. So the states got to decide on all those kind of things when Congress did the big things like war and all that. Uh, <coughs> the members of Congress elected a president of the United States uh, in Congress uh, <coughs> uh, to preside over its deliberation uh, as a neutral discussion moderator. Uh, unrelated and quite dissimilar from the later office of the President of the United States, it was largely a ceremonial position without much influence because it was just meant to be neutral. Um, the first president obviously was George Washington, uh, who established a lot of the kind of conventions and expectations of the office. Uh, um, he decided to retire after two terms. Uh, uh, helped address sort of fears that the nation would again devolve into a pseudo monarchy where people could just keep running again and again and again. Although there wasn't actually anything to stop them running longer than two terms, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, and yet, uh, so uh, and yet it uh, basically established precedent for uh, uh, over a hundred and fifty years, uh, and it would eventually have been made per permanent. Uh, <laughs> And so by the end of his uh, presidency, presidency, political parties had been developed, uh, with John Adams uh, defeating Thomas Jefferson in 1796 for the second, uh, f uh, for the first uh, contested uh, presidential election because it was fairly unanimous that George Washington, who led uh, the armies, uh, should lead the country in its sort of baby steps. Uh, and then in uh, 1800, uh, Thomas Jefferson defeated Adams, so it flips the other way. Uh, <coughs> and he and his fellow Virginians, Jan Ma James Madison and James Monroe, uh, would each serve uh, two terms evenly, uh, eventually de dominating the nation's politics in an era of good feeling until Adams and John Quincy, Quincy Adams won an election in, 1840, in 1824. Oh. All right. So, oh, why don't we go back to the... The two-term thing, yeah, because that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so that would basically... No one would go, stay more than two terms um, until 1940, uh, which was um, then when Franklin D. Roosevelt became president. Uh, he won both a third and a fourth term. Uh, and, again, sort of people were a little bit iffy about people having multiple terms, and this was the first time it happened in the the history of 
uh, well, uh, the, uh, the country, uh, the United States. Uh, I don't know why I couldn't, 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 uh, couldn't, 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 yeah, they couldn't talk. So, uh, the 22nd Amendment was put into place during, uh, at, during 1951, uh, after the amendment had been ratified by the requisite 36 of the then 48 states. Uh, uh, yep, uh, that basically became into force uh, after that date. So, um, although there wasn't any law or rule or precedent, uh, yeah, law, rule, uh, guideline that you couldn't run for more than two terms, uh, there was nothing stopping people, and uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt did it four times and won four times. Uh, but then after that, uh, they imposed the 22nd Amendment to actually limit it to two terms. Alright. So, yeah. Uh, so, Alright. Uh, oh, yeah. Eligibility. Uh, the To serve as president, um, you have to be a natural-born citizen of the United States, so you can't become a citizen later and then become president. Uh, you have to be at least 35 years old, and you have to have been a resident in the United States for at least 14 years. Uh, uh, so, yep, yeah, and then, obviously, with the 22nd Amendment, uh, prohibits people running for a third term. Uh, it also... Um, Stops people running for more than one term if they've served, served as president or acting president for more than two years of a term of which some other eligible person was elected president. So, say, somebody like a uh, president died in office, uh, the vice president took over for two years, uh, they could only run for president once. Alright. Okay. So, yeah, that's little bit of information on the the start of it uh so let's see what else so uh, oh yeah uh, this is the next kind of interesting bit is early in um electing uh, um, uh early within the this sort of electoral college uh, after uh um, george washington i can't think of names oh yikes <laughs> Uh, see, after George Washington and during the the, the following uh, presidential elections, the way voting worked is uh, was is actually a little bit different uh, to how it is now, and was changed quite soon after a couple of things happened. Uh, so yeah, uh, the first two vice presidents, uh, John Adams and John Def uh, Thomas Jefferson, both of whom gained the office by virtue of being runners up in their presidential elections, which is um, basically what we're touching on. Uh, the Congress got. Uh, two votes. Uh, uh, so I had my note and I can't find it. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, each elector was allowed up to two. Uh, uh, this is the electoral college. Uh, each elector was allowed to vote for two people for president rather than for both president and the vice president. Uh, but they could, but could not differentiate between their first and second choice uh, for the presidency. So their votes were equal standing, and it wasn't like a first past the post thing where they can like, oh, this is the person I'd like more, and then this person if they don't get a majority. So it was just equal votes for everything. Uh, so basically what that meant is is whoever got the most votes would become the president and then whoever got the second most votes would become the vice president which was fine for a little bit um, uh, until the emergence of political parties uh, and nationally coordinated, uh, coordinated election campaigns during the uh, 1790s. Um, <clears throat> uh, so yeah. 
So yeah, uh, so yes, in the election of uh, 1796, Federalist John Adams won the presidency, but his rival and Democratic Republican. Oh. <clears throat> so yeah, in the election of 1796, uh, John Adams won the presidency, but uh, John, Thomas Jefferson were, uh, came in second and became vice president. The issue there is both of them were from different parties, with John Adams being a Federalist at the time, and Thomas Jefferson being a Democratic Republican. So. Basically, what happened there is because there was no like blocking of uh, vice president and president, uh, they had opposite uh, opposing parties, which uh, made things a little difficult for you know uh, approving things and stuff when you when both the president and the vice president are essentially not working together with the same concepts in mind. And the same thing happened again four years later in the election of eighteen hundred, uh, where Jefferson. Um, one and uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, and then Aaron Burr <coughs> uh, so yeah um, and then the same thing happened uh, with Jefferson and Aaron Burr basically Aaron Burr uh, they tied and uh, base and they fought against each other fairly hard during that election uh, uh, so when it was decided that uh, Jefferson won and Aaron Burr became vice president. They, uh, Jefferson wasn't exactly too chuffed uh, to work with somebody who had campaigned very, very hard against him. And uh, at that point, there was a system put in place with the 12th Amendment um, to uh, basically uh, well, uh, you know, uh, make it how we, we uh, have the American people vote today, because obviously I'm not American. So yeah, and the twelfth amendment, um, uh, basically it uh, put into place, uh, the the electing for president and uh, vice president. It replaced the procedure in Article Two, Section One, Clause Three in the Electoral College. Uh, the amendment was proposed uh, by the Congress on uh, December uh, eighteen o three and was ratified uh, then uh, later. Uh, the new rules took place for the 1804 election and ha and have governed all subsequent uh, presidential elections since. Uh, uh, under the new rules of the Constitution, each member of the electoral college cast two votes. Uh, under the original rules here, we've already talked about, about that. Uh, that's where my note was. Uh, so, yeah, and then now it's that they're blocked together, so you're voting for a, a team of people rather than individuals with the potential that they maybe don't get on uh, and don't work together in that kind of uh, format which is probably a good thing because you know it's not great when the person who's directly below you and will take your job over if anything happens to you or you have to step down is working against you that can create a rather hostile environment I guess <laughs> Um, so that is basically what they did with that. Alright, so that's a couple of interesting things from the start and a little bit further on with uh, the presidential elections and all that good stuff. Uh, and with that, we're going to go into a very short break uh, and then come back and do a few more little things uh, about the, the presidency. <clears throat> Alright, uh, I'll see you in just a minute, guys. Okay, hi guys, uh, welcome 
to this mid-roll which is just me which is scary because I normally don't do this bit but I will be I will be doing both and uh, we're talking about World Anvil first uh, obviously we talk about World Anvil every week so I do know quite a bit of that right uh, World Anvil is a uh, the most robust campaign management software uh, uh, out there it won an any for it a couple of years ago I think in 2019 or 2020 what is time it's an illusion uh, so it's a great software for world building campaign management whether you're making a campaign for like a D&D or RPG game uh, or you're creating plots and places for books and stuff it's got great map editing tools uh, you can link people and places and characters together you can also link how well they get on whether they're friends allies rivals uh, uh, whether they know each other or not and all that kind of thing uh, it's a really great sort of service uh, which um, you can use to flesh out your world make articles on like important history historical things and it's a great way to add more to a story if you don't uh, have a like an easy way of including it without it sort of dragging down any kind of plot for like books you might be writing. You can have it there as additional information that people can learn about your world. Um, it's amazing. It's got great sort of features, and you can sign up for free at worldamble.com. They do also have uh, paid features, which you can. Uh, become a guild member for, uh, which they have different tiers for ev everything you can need. Uh, regardless, the base uh, service is really robust, um, and we really do recommend that you try them out. They're amazing, and we love them very much. Uh, as for other people we love very much, the bit that I'm more familiar with is Die Hard Dice. Obviously, as we are all RPG lovers and all that kind of thing, we need dice to play those. Um, I don't particularly get too many dice per character. I tend to sort of stick that to one dice uh, set, but they uh, a good portion of them have come from Die Hard Dice because they're just so gorgeous. They have so many different things that they've been working on. They're multi-class metal dice where you can uh, collect two different uh, sort of metal side dice together. Um, so they, you know, they <clears throat> look different on each side. They've got their Spellwinder series with dual colours in the regular thing. They've got their Mythica sets, which are polymer dice that look like the same kind of moulding as their metal ones, which I absolutely adore. They have their metal moulds. Uh, they have great accessories like the Squad Rolling, which we talked about before, and pop-up dice trays and all that good stuff. Uh, you can search their website through for like colour, race, uh, and class and price and material and so many other things um also they have free shipping in the us and discounted shipping internationally which is amazing for me and amazing for everyone else uh, also if you do happen to find anything that you like you can use the code nerdsmith hyphen jan that's nerdsmith um n-e-r-d-s-m-i-t-h hyphen j-a-n for 15 percent off your order uh, so yeah, if you do want to roll with the best, all you need to do is go to dieharddice.com. We love them. We have loved them for like the past three years since we, since we found out about them. And yeah, they're amazing. You should definitely check them out. Okay, right. So now we're going to get back into talking about the presidency and uh, basically about how uh, the steps to becoming elected uh, is what we're going to be talking about next. Okay, so 
Uh, now we've done all that mid-rolly stuff, uh, let's have a look at a selection process. Yes, as we've already said, you do need to be a national-born US citizen and 35 years old and have lived here for at least 14 years. Okay, so in nomination, the vice presidential candidates uh, of the major nation uh, political parties are formally selected by each party's uh, quadrennial nominate, uh, nomination convention following the selection of the party's presidential can candidate. Uh, the official process is identical to the one in which the president uh, candidates are chosen, uh, chosen uh, with delegates placing names, uh, placing the names uh, of the candidates into nomination, uh, followed by a ballot in which the candidates must receive a majority. Uh, though in practice, the president uh, presidential nominee has considerable influence on the decision. Uh, so obviously, if like they're running together, it's generally more likely that they're going to be put uh, put together if, if the president, uh, if the running president uh, or running for president, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, chose on um, that, then it's more likely they're going to be put forward than somebody else of the party, though. It could still happen. Uh, and yet in the 20th century it became customary for the, the person to select uh, the preferred for the person to select their preferred running mate uh, who is then nominated and accepted by the convention in recent years with the presidential nomination usually being a foregone conclusion as the result of the primary process uh, the selection of the vice president candidates uh, is often announced prior to the actual balloting of the presidential candidate <laughs> uh, uh, and sometimes before the beginning of the convention itself uh, the first presidential candidate to choose his vice presidential candidate was uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who we have already mentioned, who basically broke, well not broke, uh, set um, new ground and rules and stuff. Uh, the last uh, not to name a vice president, uh, the last not to name a vice presidential choice, leaving the matter up to the convention, was um, uh, Democrat uh, Aladdie C uh, Stevenson. In uh, 1956, and uh, the convention chose Tennessee Senator uh, Easter uh, K. Kefiro over Massachusetts Senator and later President John F. Kennedy. At the tumultuous uh, 1972 uh, Democratic Convention, President uh, nominee George uh, McGovern selected Senator Thomas A. Eagleton as his running mate, but numerous other candidates were either nominated uh, for the floor or received votes during the balloting. Eagleton nevertheless received a majority of the votes and the nomination. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, then there's uh, the election. Uh, <coughs> All right. So yeah, that's a bit about the vice president. Uh, obviously, uh, the president. Uh, the mother, uh, the modern presidential campaign begins before the primary elections, uh, and it basically where the two major political parties who uh, used to clear the field of candidates before their before their national nominating conventions, where the most successful candidate uh, candidate is made the party's presidential nominee. So, uh, like say last last presidential election uh, for the uh, Joe Biden and. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, will both run uh, both uh, up for the candidacy but only one of them was selected uh, so yeah. <clears throat> as for the actual election the president is elected indirectly by the voters of each state and the District of Columbia <laughs> uh, DC uh, through the Electoral College a body of electoral electors formed every four years uh, for the sole purpose of electing the president and vice president president for concurrent four-year terms so <clears throat> on, the, on the first monday um after the second wednesday in december about six weeks after the election oh no uh, 
I've skipped a bit. Oh no. Alright, each state is entitled to a number of electors equal to the size of its total delegation in both the Houses of Congress. Additionally, uh, the 23rd Amendment provides that the District of Columbia is entitled to the number it would have if it were a state, uh, but in no case uh, more than uh, of the least populous state. Okay. Alright, uh, and obviously some of the biggest states with the most um, voting power is like California, uh, with 55 and then Texas like 38 uh, New York has a, a very high number as well because how many people are there uh, and yeah so uh, basically they're all assigned based on the, the number of people basically living in the state which can, which can vary wildly uh, with a minimum of I think three I think three is the minimum that, uh, that any state has oh Okay. <clears throat> Alright, so as for elections day where all the votes are generally cast and no more votes can be counted, or not counted, cast past that point, gotta get that right. Uh, it's the first Tuesday of the month of November, or as the quote by the federal government, the Tuesday next after the first Monday of the no month of November, so it occurs between uh, November 2nd and November 8th. Um, and it's first Tuesday, Thurs for Thursday is us over here, so I had to check and get that right. So, yeah. That is that, and then where was I? Inauguration. Oh yeah. Uh, the the inauguration for the both the president and the vice president uh, terms begin at noon on January twentieth. Uh, so that's why all the elections happen on uh, like eighteen hundred eighteen oh four two thousand and twenty, and then they kick into place a cup. Um, I guess it would be just over two months later. Yeah. Uh, the first president and vice presidential terms to begin on this date, known as Inauguration Day, were the second terms of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, he comes up quite a bit, and Vice President uh, John Nance Garner in 1937. Previously, the Inauguration Day was on March the 4th, as a result of the date change of the first term, uh, 33 and th uh, between 33 and 37. Both of these men ha uh, had been shortened by uh, 43 years. Um, uh, so yeah. 43 years, 43 days. <laughs> Excuse that flub. Uh, so, yep. Uh, before executing the powers of the office, the uh, president is required to recite the presidential oath of office heard uh, in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8 of the Constitution. This is the only component in, uh, in the organization ceremony mandated by the Constitution. I solemnly swear, or to affirm, that I will faithfully execute the, or, uh, the office of the President of the United States, and I will do my best uh, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Presidents uh, have traditionally placed one hand upon a Bible while taking this oath and uh, have added, so help me God, to the end of the earth, although the earth uh, may be administered by, uh, by any person authorised by law to administer, uh, administer oaths. Uh, presidents are traditionally sworn in by the Chief Justice of the United States. Uh, as for term limits, we've already talked. Um, uh, George Washington uh, set a precedent of having two terms and not running for a third. Uh, he established uh, a quote two terms of the net precedent. Pres uh, 
the precedent became tradition after Thomas Jefferson publicly embraced uh, the principle uh, a decade later during his second term, as did the two immediate successors, James Madison and James Monroe. In spite of a strong two-term tradition, Ulysses S. Grant unsuccessfully sought a non-consecutive third term in 1880, and then in 1940, after leaving uh, leading the nation through the Great Depression, Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected uh, to a third term, breaking the long-standing president, precedent, and four years later, uh, with uh, the U.S. engagement in World War One, he was re-elected again despite his declining health. Uh, he died eighty-two days into his fourth term in uh, on the twelfth of April, nineteen forty-five. Uh, so yeah, and then um, about six years later, in nineteen fifty-one, the twenty-second amendment was adopted to stop that being um, something that could happen again because they thought that two terms was a good limit and it had been working really well up until that point but you can understand why people uh well somebody who got them through the great depression would be a good person to continue running the country and then at the start of the the war when 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 uh, when the u.s joined world war ii uh they weren't there by the start but when they joined it it'd be better to keep things um in the power that had been working but it didn't really matter too much because he died um, 82 days into the fourth term <coughs> so since the amendment adoption five percent have served two full terms with that being Dwight Dwee, Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, uh, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump each sought a second term but were defeated uh, Richard Nixon was elected uh, to a second term, but resigned before completing it, and Lyndon B. Johnson, having held the presidency for one full term in addition to only 14 months of John F. Kennedy's unexpired uh, term, was eligible for a second full term in 1968, but he withdrew from the Democratic primary. Additionally, uh, Gerald, Gerald Ford, who served out the last two years and five months of Nixon's second term, sought a full term, but was defeated by Jimmy Carter. Right. As for if uh, the the situations where vice president can become president, there are a few different ones. Um, if the president is one removed from the office, uh, which would be impeached, um, and the impeachment goes through and they're removed that way. If they die, which has happened, or resignation of uh, of the president. This has occurred a, f a number of times. Like we've already said, Franklin D. Roosevelt died in his fourth term. Resignation has occurred a couple uh, has occurred only once, which. Uh, was Richard Nixon, and removal have office ha uh, removal from office has never occurred, although uh, that might change. <laughs> uh, but uh, so yeah, impeachment is like not immediate removal and has to be go through Congress and have a. Uh, I guess would I guess it would be a trial or an indictment. That's the word indictment. Sorry. <clears throat> the original constitution stated that the vice president assumes the powers and duties of the presidency in the event of the president's removal, death, or resignation, or inability. Under this clause, there was ambiguity about whether the vice president would actually become the president in the event of a vacancy, or simply act as them, potentially resulting in a special election. Uh, upon the death of William Henry Harrison in 1841, Vice President John Tyre, uh, Tyler declared that he has succeeded uh, the, to the office itself, refusing to accept any papers addressing uh, the uh, to the acting president, and Congress ultimately accepted it. So, so I guess he just <laughs> was stubborn enough, and they they went with it. Uh, this established a, pre uh, a precedent for future successions, although it was not form formally uh, clarified until the twenty fifth uh, amendment was ratified. In the event of a double vacancy. Um, 
Congress uh, is to declare who shall become acting president in the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, uh, both of the president and the vice president. Although I don't believe that has ever happened. Uh, as for sort of what uh, inability sort of means, um, basically it's where the president can uh, transfer the powers uh, to the vice president who becomes an acting president uh, if the president is unable to uh, perform their duties um, and then when they are then available uh, able again to they can uh, they can take their power back uh, they, this has been used uh, once by Ronald Reagan and twice by w, uh, George W. Bush uh, and in all those cases it was in anticipation of surgery so you know uh, during recovery time they could actually recover <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> All right. Um, I'm going through my notes here, but I don't think there's much else to cover unless we start sort of lifting off, <coughs> listing off like presidents and stuff. And while I could do that, that's not necessary because you guys know how Google works. I'm very sure about that. Uh, so yeah, uh, the beginning of the United States. Definitely has some interesting quirks with the presidency, which are not not wrong, but are definitely changed, especially like with the vice president and president um, <coughs> being elected simultaneously but separately, um, and can be opposite parties. That one's definitely weird, and I feel like that's probably a good change, but. I am not a political expert, but I do feel like it's interesting to go over. Um, <clears throat> as for other things like the Bill of Rights and stuff, that's not necessarily related to the presidency, but it's definitely something we could cover in the future, uh, especially like maybe with Heather here. It could be an interesting topic, because she'll probably know more than I will. Uh, that's just a fact. Because, you know, she, she lives there. Um, as for that, I think I'm going to wrap this one up here. Um, uh, let me know if there's anything that I particularly missed that you find really in, uh, interesting. Um, I'm definitely interested in learning more. Um, and feel free to have a look and to see what else you can learn for yourself. Uh, obviously, we're, you're, oh, the American people, I hope, uh, hopefully, uh, are going to be getting a new president um, the day this goes out. And I hope that all goes well. Uh, and yeah, uh, otherwise, just keep yourself safe, like we've been saying forever. Covid is still uh, a dangerous thing, and it's still a threat to people. So keep yourself as safe as you can. Uh, like I said, hopefully Heather and I will be back next episode together. That is the plan, and then we'll be talking about one of my monarchs, uh, uh, King Henry the Eighth. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, uh, with all that being said, I hope you enjoyed this ramble <laughs> um, as much as it is, and I will talk to you all very soon. Bye guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. Don't forget to check out all the other amazing content on the Nerdsmith Network. If you have any questions for either of us, you can get in contact with us on Twitter at geek underscore thyself. You can also email us at geekthyself at nerdsmith.org. And please don't forget to go to iTunes and leave us a review or also go anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another informative and fun episode. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. Mm-hmm.